Here they are in the NSC advisor's office, trying to make their best case possible for action. But in trying to make this persuasive case, they never once mentioned that already two Al-Qaeda terrorists known to be involved in the Kuala Lumpur planning center had entered the United States. Why don't you trot out what is the most persuasive piece of evidence you've got? These guys are already in the country. They're not here to go look at the Grand Canyon. The people who were doing that briefing knew that fact and didn't trot it out. So you ask yourself, why not? Hello everyone, that was a clip of National Security Coordinator Richard Clark talking about the CIA's failure to inform either him or the FBI when two of the would-be 9-11 attackers entered the United States. It's no exaggeration to say that this inaction allowed the attacks to proceed, and in this interview I'll be asking Adam Fitzgerald to explain this whole situation and have a go at suggesting some answers to Richard Clark's question of why not. Well, the NSA began monitoring uh, Osama bin Laden's satellite phone in the very early period of the 1990s. Now, it's not known exactly what year. However, it's assumed either in 1992 or 93. The CIA, however, had begun monitoring bin Laden in 1991. Now, the FBI had began noticing bin Laden's name in the files given to them from the CIA and NSA in 1995. Bin Laden uses his satellite phone between 1991 and 96, and in 1996, he discontinues use of it. But in January of 1996, the Justice Department creates Squad I-49, a unit composed of prosecutors from the Southern District of New York and FBI agents in the New York field office dedicating to monitoring the financial and logistical nature of Al-Qaeda. The unit is led by Louis Napoli, John Antisev, Jack Cloonan, John O'Neill, Carl Sumlin, Kevin Cruz, and Tom Lang. Just a month later, the Central Intelligence Agency begins its own unit dedicating to tracking Osama bin Laden in the Al-Qaeda cell. David Cohn, head of the CIA's Counterterrorism Center in 1996, wanted to implement a virtual station modeled on the agency's overseas stations and act as one station sharing the data collected all around the region. Cohn had a hard time uh, figuring out who would run the station and later on found a, a perfect candidate at the time, someone who could speak Farsi, Arabic, and understood the nature of the Sunni-Shia divide and the Al-Qaeda and other terrorist cells. His name was Michael Shoyer. The station opened officially at the very end of January of 96. The station would open as a unique group, which would have personnel consisting of the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the Defense Intelligence Agency, or the DIA. Formerly titled the Bin Laden Issue Station, it was codenamed Alex Station, named after Michael Shoyer's son. CIA Chief George Tenet in 96 would claim that the unit's mission was to track intelligence regarding bin Laden and run operations against him while disrupting its finances. Um, the CIA begins to monitor the home of Ahmed al-Hada in Yemen and also tap the house. Meanwhile, the NSA taps the phone and the house of al-Hada 
who is the father-in-law to Khalid al-Midar at around 1997, 96, 97. Um, okay, that's the Yemen hub we talked about in the, I think it was the last episode. That, right? That's correct. This center, right. Essentially, you can't necessarily call uh, easily across the Arab world, or you can't necessarily call Afghanistan from Egypt um, very easily. So there was this central hub in Yemen um, where a lot of Al-Qaeda traffic went through. That's correct. Can I also ask you, just this sure. point, one thing that's occurring to me is it seems like the intelligence agencies now in 1996 are taking the Al-Qaeda threat very seriously, whereas when we looked at the 1993 bombing of the World Trade Center and prior to that, the assassination of the Jewish radical Maya Kahani, there was this downplaying of the idea of organized Islamist terror, okay, that... Um, there was low notes, and then when they would try and prosecute groups, it was kept as small as possible, uh, ostensibly at least, to secure convictions. But there wasn't a kind of a sense of urgency to the threat that this posed. And now in 1996, we're seeing the FBI and CIA setting up these monitoring groups, the Justice Department. What has changed in the perception in the intelligence agencies? Is it the as a consequence of... Operation Bajinka, the hijacking plans being revealed? Well, I, I would like to make the distinction. I think the CIA certainly knew that the dangers that would arise from the Mujahideen mm-hmm. in Afghanistan. And I think that they knew, uh, certainly well known, uh, bin Laden in between 89 to 91. Uh, there was, I mean, the CIA began uh, really investing. Uh, much of their time, especially the the uh, the Arab, the CIA uh, liaison stations in Afghanistan, in Iraq, in Yemen, and I think they they knew. Although there is very little uh, uh, known public information regarding this, but they wouldn't have made it their mission to follow Bin Laden as early as ninety one. Now the FBI, I certainly believe the FBI was certainly. Um, convinced that when they prosecuted Ramzi Youssef and the Landmarks plot cell uh, operators like Omar Abdel Rahman, that they 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 knew. They said, "Well, this this was this was it. There is no wider uh, cell regarding that." And I think that's due to the FBI's overall ignorance regarding the uh, the Mujahideen and the CIA uh, at the time, which, which was a covert operation secretly behind funding these these operatives. And it came out, I think, later by the mid-90s that uh, that certainly wasn't the case, that these people were uh, more, um, more uh, I would say, extensive, uh, especially in, in, in the United States when, they, when operations like uh, Able Danger started and, of course, um, the uh, Bin Laden issue station and the I-49 team began, uh, uh, began implementing their operations because they had to have known that uh, their previous uh, adversaries in these agencies, especially with the FBI, uh, they were wrong, that there was a, a okay. much higher cell. Okay, well, thanks for that. Just to do carry on with the, the narrative of Alex Station. Yeah, sure. Um, now, of course, the NSA isn't going to confirm or deny they tapped the phone in 96 because they claimed that they started in 98. Now, however, I would suggest that they knew about the number the Yemen safe house number from mm-hmm. bin Laden satellite phone as this number was called repeatedly and bin Laden would call that number repeatedly. 
So I would, I would, I would, I would assume with great conviction that they tapped that phone in '96. Now, it's a, there's a big distinction between them because if they started in '96, that means the NSA had to have known the operations of the the embassy bombing, yeah, uh, and and the coal bombing as well. Uh, uh, but in '98, uh, because they, they they suggested they started tapping the phone in '98 after the embassy bombings. So I just want to make that distinction clear. That's why we really don't know when that year started, because there isn't uh, public information regarding that. I would I would submit to you that they knew in '96. Yeah, sure. I, I think that came out when we spoke about the, right. um, the embassy bombings and the Evan Hub. That the NSA is just completely impenetrable into what they know and when they know it, and they certainly don't release transcripts. Okay, so, so even in the 9/11 Commission, we really didn't learn anything, you know, about what the NSA knew and, and when they knew it. Right, because they didn't even ask the right questions to to Michael Hayden when he was at the uh, at the commission itself or at the Joint House inquiry. However, Shoyer would begin to ask the NSA if they could share information, cable, which was co-work cables, in which they only had one part of the receiving call. Now, remember what I said before, the CIA tapped the house. So that means they could listen in on calls that were made outgoing, but not incoming because they didn't tap the phone. The NSA could listen to both outgoing and receiving calls. Now, the NSA would be reluctant in sharing these cables with the CIA. So Shoyer would take his complaint to NSA Deputy Director Barbara McNamara. And McNamara would deny Shoyer's request, even so far as threatening him with legal action if he were to compromise the NSA's tap line. And even though this was a, a very complex issue, um, because the CIA was in charge of the operation involving the monitoring of Al Hadda's home, the NSA would ultimately win out for now. In late 97, Richard Clark, head of the Counterterrorism Center, would have numerous uh, vehement disagreements with Michael Scheuer. One former CIA insider, whose name was uh, anonymous, will later say that he could attest that among individuals, individuals that he tended to trust, Clark was regarded as more serious about terrorism in the 1990s than anybody else in the US government. But he was, he was a truly painful individual to work with, end quote. Now, Scheuer and the Alex Station unit also didn't get along with some of the FBI agents assigned to it from uh, John O'Neill. And these two individuals were like Mark Rossini and Doug Miller particularly. This was evident due to the fact that it was O'Neill's men, um, as O'Neill had a reputation of being very aggressive and boisterous regarding his investigation to Al-Qaeda. Um, Shoya would claim that the FBI never shares information with the Alex Station Unit, and O'Neill would also say that the CIA would never share information regarding what the Alex Station collected to the FBI agents uh, directed with it. Um, but by 1999, CIA Director George Tenet decides to declare war on Osama bin Laden directly after Osama bin Laden's fatwa in 1998, where he declares all Muslims to kill Americans where you find them. Tenet also constructs a new strategy regarding Al-Qaeda and bin Laden. Tenet orders the counterterrorism center headed by Clark to begin a new review of the CIA strategy. And by, by spring of 1999, he enacts his strategy and he demotes Michael Scheuer and inserts Richard Blee as the new head of the Alex Station unit with Kofor Black as the director of the CTC. Tenet's new strategy would be titled, called The Plan. 
And according to Steve Cull, who is the author of Ghost Wars, the plan would outline as such, quote, Kofor Black and his new bin Laden unit wanted, wanted to project into Afghanistan and, and penetrate bin Laden's sanctuaries. They described their plan as military officers might. They sought to surround Afghanistan with covert bases for CIA operations, as many bases as they could arrange, that they would mount operations from each of these platforms, time to move inside Afghanistan and as close to bin Laden as they could to get recruit agents and to attempt to capture high-level operatives inside Al-Qaeda, end quote. Immediately, Kofor Black institutes a clandestine operation titled Jawbreaker 5, an operation involving the Special Operations Command capturing bin Laden in Afghanistan and bringing him back to the United States while using Ahmad Shah Massoud of the Northern Alliance as the proxy army to force the Taliban's hand. The, ta the plan, however, had a less than 5% chance of succeeding and bin Laden, uh, U.S. President bin, uh, Bill Clinton uh, said that the plan would never work and it was never deployed. Meanwhile, Blee and the Alex Station employees, basically consisting of just women, which Michael Shore wanted, and they were nicknamed the Manson family. Um, these were people like Alfredo Francis Butowski, who would later marry Michael Shore in 2004, um, Michael, Michelle Ann Casey, and Jennifer Lynn Matthews. And they became much more seclusive regarding their FBI counterparts. What, why were they called the Manson family? That's pretty sinister sounding. Right. Well, they were called the Manson family from the FBI and from other, like the defense intelligence, because Michael Schur was like the leader of this group. And if, if you look at the Manson family, it was Charles Manson. It was all these women involved. In uh, of course. Sorry. Yeah. Kind of, yeah. Right. So <laughs> that's why they were called the Manson family. And yeah, it does sound very ins insidious in its nature, but um, they decided not including the inquiries regarding data collecting on Bin Laden and the Hamburg cell which was now becoming more evident because of NSA wiretaps and the human intelligence of the CIA. The CTC began learning of a large-scale terrorist operation in 1999 through their wiretaps of the NSA and through the human intelligence that they were collecting from the CIA regarding the Yemeni safe house. In November and December of 1999, Mohammed Atta, Marwan al-Shehi, Ziad Jara and Nawafa Hamzi visits Afghanistan. Now they're all future hijackers on 9-11, right? Yeah. That is correct. Where they were then selected, <coughs> excuse me, uh, they were selected for the planes operation that was to become known as 9-11. The NSA, who were monitoring the telephone of Al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen, revealed from their taps that Khalid al-Minar, Nawaf al-Hamzi and his brother Salem al-Hamzi are to attend a very important meeting in Malaysia in June, uh, January of 2000. This is the only time where the NSA then shares this information with the CIA's Alex station because the, the information they're sharing is in hopes that the CIA monitors that, that um, Malaysia meeting and brings back that information back to the NSA. So in other words, I'll give you information but you bring back the information because they're not in charge of human right. intelligence, right? But the CIA never shares this information anyway, so it backfires on them, but not so much because the NSA connects the trio to bin Laden. And the NSA report about them on this day is called, quote, 
the activities of Bin Laden Associates, end quote, that's the name of the cable, showing their clear knowledge of their ties to Bin Laden. January 2nd of, to the 5th of 2000, Khalid al-Minar, Nawafa Hamzi are engaged with other high-profile al-Qaeda operatives in a summit meeting. The CIA from eight different offices in the region are all tasked to track Khalid al-Minar in hopes he's going to lead them to bigger al-Qaeda figures. After the meeting, Khalid al-Minar stays at a hotel in Dubai. The CIA agents break into his room, make copies of his passport by taking pictures of it and photocopying the passport. This information is immediately faxed to Alex Station. The CIA now not only learns of his full name, but also discovers the vital fact that he has a multi-entry visa and plans to visit the United States. The visa is valid from April of 99 to April of 2000. Even though the CIA now knows this information, that he plans to go to, to New York City and, and California, they do not place him on a terrorist watch list. And they fail to tell the FBI about the visa, regard, the FBI regarding uh, uh, Mark Rossini and Doug Miller. Okay, and that's kind of crucial because the FBI, that would be their, their jurisdiction, right? That, when that when he, crosses, he crosses into the United States. That is correct, because then they could arrest them. Uh, now remember, they could arrest them uh, basically all because of their ties to the uh, USS Cole. All this information is on the CIA cable. If they share that information to the FBI, 9-11 is disrupted, to say the least. It's not stopped, but it's disrupted. But because they didn't share this information, or they didn't share the cable to Mark Rossini or to Doug Miller right away, they didn't know. However, the Malaysian authorities who also monitoring the Al-Qaeda meeting, sends more information back to the, to the Alex station. This material includes reports on the attendees' movements, actions, and photographs, even a recording of the attendees on the first day, but without audio. Even though this information is absolutely pertinent, Richard Blee will not even draft a report on the intelligence relating to the Malaysia summit meeting. Lee realizes the importance of this information, and even though he doesn't hold it, he holds briefings with Sandy Berger, who's the National Security Advisor, and the FBI, at the FBI Director at the time, Louis Free. But he doesn't write a report, which would, would really would scratch your head and say, why wouldn't he? Even though he knows that the importance of this meeting is absolutely, it's, imp it's important, wholeheartedly. Uh, it just makes you, it scratches your head. Meanwhile, the FBI agents in the Alex Station, Mark Rossini and Doug Miller, how would they find the cable? They view it and they're flabbergasted that this information is not shared with them. And meanwile, Khalid Al-Miss, they knew about Khalid Al multi-entry visa. Doug Miller would draft the cable, which claims of the absolute importance of this, of this operator coming into the United States. He then sends the cable and meanwhile, it has to get approved from the deputy director of the, the, the uh, CTC. His cable is intercepted from Deputy Director Tom Wilshire. This draft cable mentions the tap on Al Midar's phone, his planned travel to Malaysia, the links between his phone, the 98 Edafrican bombings. It also says that the CIA has obtained photographs of Al Midar and that these were sent separately. Miller asked the FBI for feedback resulting from the FBI investigation and that they would arrest him. Wilshire intercepts the cable would write on the draft itself, hold on, hold off on sending.
Mark Rossini would find out that the cable was not sent back to FBI headquarters and takes it to complaint to Michelle Ann Casey, who in turn would admonish Rossini, claiming, quote, look, the next attack is going to happen in Southeast Asia. It's not the Bureau's jurisdiction. When we want the FBI to know about it, we'll let them know. But the next bin Laden attack is going to happen in Southeast Asia, end quote. What that's meaning is that the FBI now can't interfere in arresting these operatives because if they, they're going outside this jurisdiction, which is the United States, that's, that's the, the just Rossini, who cannot legally pass this information because he did not have the permission of his superiors at Alex Station, but because of Blee's ignorance in not drafting a report regarding the Malaysia meeting, the Alex Station unit would lose track of both Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hamzi while they left the Malaysian back to Thailand. By January 15th of 2000, Alex Station would end the monitoring operations of the summit meeting. It also states that on January 15th, by the 9-11 Commission, that Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hamzi enters the United States. However, this is false. Both men entered the United States much earlier. Both men arrived inside the United States by January 13th of 2000. Information which is heavily redacted shows that a cab driver named Khalid Benamarine had driven both men to the Hilton Hotel in Los Angeles on the orders of one Fahad Al-Thumeri, who I'm going to give a much more in-depth conversation, uh, in-depth profile in our next uh, interviews regarding the 9-11 attacks. He's going to have some importance. Now, a room had been rented, which is redacted on the credit card, between January 13th to January 16th. These aliases were used, uh, Saeed Abdullah and Saeed Abdullah. These men were Khalid al-Midar and Nawaf al-Hamzi. A video from Jeff Hill from Pump It Out Radio on YouTube will show this information in much more detail. Now, for whoever who wants, who's listening into this uh, interview, um, I would suggest you go to that, that uh, interview, uh, that, uh, that video from Jeff Hill, Pump It Out. The name of the interview is, Who is Khalid Benamarine? I would suggest you watch that video. Okay, we'll, we'll link to it. But you're, you're saying that the, the commission report was directly wrong by about the arrival of these two gentlemen in the United States and um, by by how long did they get it um, according according to um, uh, 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 I forgot the gentleman's name uh, Dieter Snell who's mm -hmm. a 9-11 commission member he states before the commission in an opening statement that before prior to January 16th the two weeks after they left the Malaysia meeting, they had no idea where these two gentlemen were staying. This makes sense because according to uh, Richard Blee, he loses uh, 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 monitoring of these two men, which I stated before previously, mm -hmm. and they don't know. Meanwhile, I think they did know and that they just didn't tell the, the authorities inside the United States. So in hopes that they weren't arrest them. According to Khalid Benamarine, under orders for, from Fahad al-Fumeri, he, he picks up two Saudis, and he's ordered not to talk about them. The two Saudis, now I'm going to explain how he knows who these people are, because for, for, uh, he would, 
because Ben Marine would, would be interviewed by lead investigators. Okay, and, uh, I'm going to have to slow you down here because I'm, I'm, my mind is starting to speed up to try and keep up. Okay. Uh, Crowley, Ben Marie, how did how was he picked up or how was he found to be in connection to these future hijackers? Okay, he, he's, a, he's actually a friend to Fahad Al-Sumeri. Fahad Al-Sumeri knows that he's a cab driver. Now, these, the Khalid, I mean, Khalid Al-Midar and Awafa Hamdi arrived at LAX on January 13th. They go and, and they're picked up by Khalid Benamri, who's, who's tasked to pick up these two men. They're not, he's not given them their names, however. He's, he's just known that these are two Saudis. And he's to, he's to remain quiet about it and to drive them to the Hilton Hotel at LAX. Okay, okay. Got, so how, how did... how? Carly Benamry was, at some future point, was he interviewed by the FBI, or how did people ever find out that he had picked after, up the hijackers? Right. After, he, after all this is done, the FBI does interview Carly Benamry. And I think it was by an agent named, um, I'm going to say her, her first name wrong, but her last name is Glick. And if you look at the video made by Jeff Hill, it, it names the, the, the agent itself, but it, I, her last name is Glick. And Benamrim is shown 30 pictures with 19 of the hijackers involved. This is after the 9-11 attacks, mind you. Mm -hmm. He immediately, he says, who are the two Saudis that you drove to the LAX uh, Hilton Hotel? He immediately picks out two photographs. The photographs are Khalid Al-Midar and Nawafa Hamzi. But immediately after doing this, he notices his error because he's told to be quiet about this from Fahad Al-Tumari. And he says that, um, that he denied ever meeting them. Thumeri, an imam at King Fahd Mosque, which is just blocks away from the airport and just blocks away from where Khalid Benamrim is staying as well, um, he's, he's the one who actually orders Benamrim to pick these up. During the 9-11 commission, Dieter Snell, who's a member of the commission, states before the panel that it's unknown where uh, Hazmi Amidar states, but they do know that they arrived at, uh, at the uh, airport restaurant where he meets Omar al-Bayoumi on January 16th. However, uh, what I'm suggesting to you is that there either Dieter Snell is actually lying, perjuring himself, um, or he's misled. He's misled. And, and now I don't want to ruin the, the video for you, but one of the, either Jeff Hill or somebody calls Dieter Snell and tells him of this information and Dieter Snell says, I will not talk to you about this, and hangs up on him. So take what you will, because the FBI reports are redacted about who ordered the room, because the room is under the, the credit card of this person. Supposedly, according to Jeff Hill, he thinks it's Fahad al-Thumeri, or another Saudi national, because Khalid al-Minar and Nawafa Hamzi use aliases. And they don't, they're not provided to show if IDs. They just use the aliases and they rented the room for three days. But it goes to show you why the 9-11 Commission, uh, especially uh, Zajay and, and Dieter Snell, when, when Jeff Hill called these people, they're not, they're not talking about it. And they said that they won't talk about it openly. They will not talk about it. Okay, so essentially it's an avoidance of looking at the support network that existed Correct, because it'll show you it'll show you that the Saudi nationals are supporting the uh, the the hijackers involved with nine eleven.
And how was this, like, so here's what I'm getting at, Adam. How was this uncovered? Because um, it, it, in the narrative you've given so far, I can't make sense of how anyone, the FBI or anyone, um, located the cab driver who picked the two hijackers up at the airport um, and must have located him like nine months at least later. What was the link that the, I'm assuming the FBI followed to ascertain who the, right. like, there must have, there must be a chink in the armor somewhere where they got one person in the support network and then found the cab driver and others through them. How, how was it uncovered to this support network? The, 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 the network itself, how they got to Kwame Benamarine, is that they interviewed uh, certain people that were involved with Kwame Benamarine and Fahad Al-Tumeri. Unfortunately, the, the memorandum for the record of Fahad Al-Tumeri is redacted, as well as other uh, Osama Basnan and Omar Bayoumi, who are interviewed in Saudi Arabia by the 9-11 Commission. These are the most important interviews because what they're telling, what they're suggesting is that what they're saying, Omar Abayoumi, Fahad Mary, all these Saudi nationals, is that they did meet Al Midar and Nawaf Hamdi and they did provide funding to them. But because if they did, it would show that there's a Saudi connection, and that Saudi connection is involved with the State Department, most okay. notably. And when you, when you say Saudi connection, um, you, like the, the hijackers themselves, I'm, I'm assuming they're some of the Saudi Arabian hijackers, you mean a Saudi state connection? That's correct. Yeah, I'm yeah. talking about the Saudi state itself. Not yeah, all, not, 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 I'm also... Saudi Arabians, but the actual people involved in the Saudi security. For, that's for, absolutely correct. Because if you go, if you look at the Saudi nationals that were involved, that were interviewed, they themselves have a direct connection to who? Bandar bin Sultan, his wife Haifa bin Faisal, because their transactions, their financial transactions go to who? Omar al-Bayoumi and Osama Besnan. And that information is not redacted. That information is well known, and you could look at it through archive.com um, or, or uh, um, what that one, I don't even think that 9-11 Commission website works anymore or the information is blocked, but you can download the, the files and you can see the financial transactions. Okay, just explain who Prince Bandar is um, and why that's like important. Oh, sure. Uh, well, Prince uh, uh, Bandar uh, bin Sultan is a uh, U.S. Saudi uh, consulate national um, directly related to foreign relations to the U.S. President George W. Bush. They've been friends for years. He's also been a direct liaison for decades. He's been a friend to Bill Clinton. Um, I, I think it started during the Reagan administration, um, but he, he grew a, a direct connection with, with George Bush. In fact, his nickname is called uh, Bandar Bush because of his close relations to the family itself. They would go on vacations together and whatnot. So, and he had, and because Bandar bin Sultan actually um, helped finance his oil connections uh, to also to the Saudi bin Laden group, which helped uh, George Bush in their uh, in his uh, juvenile uh, corporation, which didn't have enough funding. It was the, the Saudi bin Laden group who gave him his first for a start with the oil connections. I'll get into that in a much in a later uh, later with a later. Okay, uh, well, I, I don't know how far down this road you want to go with the South because we're, we're going to go on the track of Alex Station and what they didn't report to the FBI and then when right. they did. So do you want to talk more about the Saudi connection now or shall we just sort of leave this as a tantalizing thing and I would like to talk about that in a separate issue because okay. they've, done, 
it's a much more in-depth uh, in just let me ask you for a moment. Is, is this um information you're saying that is this what was contained within the 28 pages the connection to prince bandor yes it is and, right okay so and, just, and just that, to be... right and, and if i may interrupt uh yeah. and not just bin, bandor bin sultan but also to u.s corporations in colorado for example yeah okay so if i was to summarize it and then we'll, we'll move on yeah. uh, what we have here is well you know it, it ostensibly what we should see is this gulf between the saudi state and the kind of people who are perpetuating terrorism and that we're finding they're intertwined in some way and in a way that is suppressed and not investigated and furthermore the elements within the saudi state doing this have a a really strong tie-in to the American establishment and the, the Bush family. Um, and that's all very weird and in need of explanation. Is that a, that's, yeah, kind of a... No, that's a perfect summary. Okay. What, I'll even make it a little bit more easier for the listener. Um, how this connects to the Alex station is that what I said previously about Richard Blee losing contact with Khalid Al-Midar and Awafa Hamdi, it gives that opportunity for the people to realize that in between those two weeks of them leaving the Malaysia summit to the United States, it gives them that uh, um, air of uh, not taking uh, culpability. And that um, that when Dieter Snell tells the commission, we don't know what they would, we, we lose contact with these two uh, hijackers in those two weeks. And he assumes or, or lies openly that they arrive inside the United States by January 16th. Why I bring up the incident with um, uh, Kwali Benamri is that here we have evidence and documented evidence of the hijackers being here earlier than what the commission has stated. So that means that the FBI at least knew where these two hijackers were staying and that they were killed. I mean, well, the, the report was killed by, by Mueller, who's now the new FBI director. Um, and I'll get okay. back to it. It was killed post 9-11. It's not that the FBI knew where they were staying when they entered the country, but after 9-11, they ascertained. Right. right. They ascertained that the, the event where they were staying. And that report was killed by Robert Mueller. Right. The, the investigation was, was ended by Robert Mueller. Okay. And the CIA would, would remain moot regarding this. This is important because it now leads that the CIA now has no culpability about the hijackers inside the United States because they lose them conveniently. Oh, okay, right. Okay, okay. That, what that's... I'm saying, they, they'll take oh, okay. right um, now. What I'm what I'm saying is 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 this: the CIA will feign knowledge about the hijackers inside the parameters of Southeast Asia, yeah. in Malaysia. But when they get to the United States, oh, we don't know. We lose track of them. We don't know where they're going. Okay, well, they, yeah. they knew exactly where they were going because they had the information at Alex Station regarding Al Midar and Al Hazmi having dual entry visas. Now remember, that information is not shared with FBI. So when they say, when Richard Blee says, I don't know where they went, automatically the CIA now washes their hands of the situation. And yeah. that's the end, right? Because now it's up to the FBI to, to think, oh, well, they must have went to Southeast Asia. Because what is what does my, Michelle and Casey tell Mark Rossini? The next attack is in Southeast okay. So would you be confident enough to say the CIA really were lying when they said they'd lost track of them? The I, I, I want to say this much. I have absolutely no concrete evidence that the CIA is involved with the, the, the attacks. I, I will tell you, 
and the viewer or the listener that they absolutely knew where these people were going because they had the information right there in the cable. They were coming to the United States. And okay. then they knew that this operation was taking place. Why? Because they have human intelligence regarding the Yemen safe hub. Right. That's why they're asking the NSA for the other half of the cable what's being translated on the other end of the phone call because okay. they don't have a time. Right. So we'll come on to motivation in a moment for why they might be doing this. Um, but they're in the country in early January and there's now nine months ahead to the attacks. What do we know about what the, those particular two hijackers did at that time and, and what the CIA did or didn't do with them? Well, well, that's a that's a very good question. I would I would say that when they came to the United States, the CIA just, in, in essence, sat back and watched. I don't want to say that the entire Central Intelligence Agency or that everyone in Alex Station is guilty of this. But George Tennant, when he gives uh, his testimony before the joint inquiry, when when Carl Levin a member of the Joint Inquiry, asks him who read the cable regarding the multi-entry visas. George Tennant, quote, and I'm going to give you his quote, it was information only, nobody read that cable, end quote. Lawrence Wright, the author of The Looming Tower, and also who's behind the production of that uh, HBO documentary, the, the right. series The Looming Tower, which is good. In his book, he says that that's not true because 53 agents read that cable. And that would mean that people like Alfreda and Bitowski, Michelle and Casey, Jennifer, uh, I forgot her last name, and a lot of the people within Alex Station knew, even with Scheuer, even, no, I'm not Scheuer, with Richard Blee and Kofor Black, that means these people read that cable and knew that these people would come to the United States, didn't inform the FBI. Now, listen, I'm not saying that they, they wanted this to happen, or I could say that they allowed it to happen. I can't tell you that they wanted this, that they, they were absolutely complicit in the attacks. Well, can, I, can I just clarify a narrative? Is it sure. true that we don't know much about the CIA's interaction with the hijackers or what the hijackers were up to? I'm, just, I'm talking about these two specific hijackers um, for the following months up until the attacks then. Because they do, they do inform the FBI at some point, right? Before we talk about what the CIA's motivation for this might have been, um, I think I'm going to say September 4th, but go ahead and correct me on that. Just prior to the attacks, they do go ahead and inform the FBI of their presence. Yes, Richard Blee. I'm going to redact my September 4th, actually, and let you give the accurate. I don't think I'm getting that wrong. It's actually an interview. It's actually they go to a principal's meeting in August of 21st of 2001, and they go before Richard Clark, and he they tell Richard Clark that Khalid Al, that there's two operatives, Khalid Al Minor Nawaf Hamdi, that are inside the United States, and that's all he gives them. And later on, Clark says, "All right, where, where are they staying? Cause now they have to to find out who these men are. They have to get the FBI involved, and they say they're in Los Angeles. But by then, they're long gone, and the CIA actually knows where they are, but doesn't tell even Clark at that point where they are." And it was later on, I think a week prior, I think you're going to be right about September 4th or 5th, they go before the FBI and they tell them the information. But the information they give them is so vague, by the time the FBI rounds up enough people to try and, and, and uh, arrest these two people, they don't even know where they are. Because they, then they go 
to Los Angeles. They start interviewing people. Um, uh, they interview the landlord. They interview um, uh, one informant called Abdus Sutter Sheikh, who actually rents a room to Khalid Al Murder and Nawaf Hamzi. His information is pretty vague because you know they don't trust him anyway. Um, but by then, it's much too late to stop the attacks because the attacks are already in motion. They get all their plane tickets involved. They, they have everything at their disposal. They're just waiting at this time. And they go to the uh, hotels in, in New York, New Jersey, and Washington, and the FBI doesn't know where they are. And, but the CIA actually controls the information. Now, I can probably make a great argument and say that they wanted this to happen. Certain people within the CIA wanted it to happen. I can't say that they were complicit in creating the attacks. I, I, I agree with, with the, uh, the assertion of Michael Collins Piper, the late Michael Collins Piper, that 9-11 was created by these uh, international Arab organized gangsters, uh, religious fund, whatever you want to call them, and that it was manipulated by the American intelligence and Israeli intelligence, and that they caught, they caught a link. I, I, I would, I would uh, okay. totally... Let, let I would me, totally, as a way of setting up that line of inquiry then as to the CIA's motivation, I'll play in a little clip of Richard Clark being interviewed by John Duffy and yes. Ray, how do you pronounce the second name, Adam? It's Ray, I'm sorry. Ray, I'll, I'll, I hope he forgives me. Ray Nolawiski? Yeah, that's, I mean, I've actually got it written in front of me. It's So sorry, Ray. Um, now these two gentlemen created the documentary 9-11 Press for Truth, which, um, yeah, if I was going to say, someone asked me what's the best documentary to watch on 9-11 if you're going to watch one. Um, I think that would be my pick. Um, so, but they, they had a sit-down interview with um, Richard Clark and got some answers out of him, really insightful about the, the CIA and Alex Station yeah. and the two hijackers. So I'll, I'll play that clip now and then get your thoughts on it, Adam. What we did after the embassy bombings was we came up with an interagency approved strategy. Some of that involved CIA, some involved the State Department, some involved the Defense Department, some involved the FBI. What I was told by CIA at the time was that they were now going to try for the first time to get sources on the inside. George right. Tenet followed uh, all of the information about Al-Qaeda uh, in microscopic detail. Uh, he read raw intelligence reports before analysts in the counterterrorism center did. And he would pick up the phone and call me at 7.30 in the morning to talk about them. Kofor Black had a reputation for being hard charging. You know, most CIA agents in those days didn't like to get their fingers dirty. They liked to work under diplomatic cover in embassies and go to cocktail parties. Kofor Black had been in the back alleys of Khartoum. And Rich Blee understood how CIA worked because he had been sitting right next to George Tenet as his aide. They understood Al-Qaeda was a big threat. They were motivated. And they were really trying hard. They only follow Almadar al-Hazmi and, and Benatash uh, out of the meeting. And then they lose them in, in Bangkok. Bangkok. And it's not 
as I originally thought, which was that one lowly CIA analyst got this information and didn't somehow recognize the significance of it. No, 50, 50 CIA personnel knew about this. You understand the way they update us at the White House is every morning I come in, I turn on my computer, and I get 100, 150 CIA reports. I'm not relying on somebody calling me and telling me things. You have to intentionally stop it. You have to intervene and say, no, I don't want that report to go. And I never got a report to that effect. If there was a decision made to stop normal distribution with regard to this, this case, then people like Tom Wilshire would have known that. Tom Wilshire, uh, as well as uh, Desk Officer Michelle, accessed the cable, mentioning the UBL Associates coming to the, uh, to the United States, the March cable. Uh, and they also accessed the original Malaysian cable about the visa multiple times. On these subsequent times, if he shook something loose, he had full range of opportunity to alert you. He did, but he wouldn't have to. Because unless somebody intervened to stop the normal automatic distribution, mm -hmm. I would automatically get it. For me, to this day, it is inexplicable why, when I had every other detail about everything related to terrorism, that the director didn't tell me, that the director of the counterterrorism center didn't tell me, that the other 48 people in CIA who knew about it never mentioned it to me or anyone in my staff in a period of over 12 months. They were stopped from getting to you and stopped from getting to the White House then. And stopped from getting to the FBI and the Defense Department. We therefore conclude that there was a high-level decision in the CIA ordering people not to share that information. How high-level? I would think it would have to be made by the director. You gotta understand, my relationship with him, we were close friends, he called me several times a day. We shared the most trivial of information with each other. There was not a lack of information sharing. They told us everything except this. Here they are in the NSC advisor's office, trying to make their best case possible for action. But in trying to make this persuasive case, they never once mentioned that already two Al-Qaeda terrorists known to be involved in the Kuala Lumpur planning center had entered the United States. Why don't you trot out what is the most persuasive piece of evidence you've got. These guys are already in the country. They're not here to go look at the Grand Canyon. The people who were doing that briefing knew that fact and didn't trot it out. So you ask yourself, why not? The, I have thought about this a lot and there's only one conceivable reason that I've been able to come up with. Now, there may be other reasons, but I've only been able to come up with one. When Kofor Black became the head of the Counterterrorism Center at CIA, 
he was aghast that they had no sources in Al-Qaeda. So he told me, I'm going to try to get sources in Al-Qaeda. I can understand them possibly saying, we need to develop sources inside Al-Qaeda. When we do that, we can't tell anybody about it. And I can understand them perhaps seeing these two guys show up in the United States and thinking, aha, this is our chance to flip them. This is our chance to get guys inside Al-Qaeda. And to do that, we can't tell anybody outside CIA until we got them, until they're really giving us information. If they tell the FBI, the FBI can say, no, this is in the United States. We want him. He's going to become an FBI source and we'll botch it. Let's instead, we'll flip them. Then we'll get them to leave the United States and go back home. And they'll be our source. And we'll never have to tell the FBI that we got them here. So we do know that these two guys show up in Southern California. And pretty soon thereafter, they're approached by a Saudi. We know the Saudi reaches out, meets them in a restaurant, arranges housing for them, arranges payment to them, arranges to move them to San Diego. And that Saudi has connections to the Saudi government, and some people believe that guy was a Saudi intelligence officer. If we assume, for the sake of argument, that the Saudi intelligence guy in Southern California was the handler for these two, then presumably he would have been reporting to the CIA Los Angeles station. There was a strong relationship between the CIA director and the uh, Minister of Intelligence in Saudi Arabia. Well, after that, the trail goes cold about what conceivable Saudi intelligence or CIA contact with them occurred. You know, one thing that happens in agent recruitment is we think we've recruited the agent, but then later we discover that they're playing us. Here's a double agent. And at some point, CIA realizes that. That's possible. How long do you think it would take them to decide this isn't working? I don't know. I do know in August of 2001, they decide they're going to tell the FBI. And there's no obvious reason in the record why for 15, 16 months they decide not to tell the FBI. And then one day they wake up and say they're going to tell the FBI. Ask yourself why on September 4th, after they've told the FBI, but not told senior levels of the FBI. Why not raise it in the September 4th principles meeting? I mean, if I ask myself that, I don't... There's a very obvious answer. What am I going to say? I know, I know how all this stuff works. I've been working it for 30 years. You can't snowball me on this stuff. If they announce on September 4th in the principals meeting that these guys are in the United States and they told the FBI a few weeks ago, 
I'm going to say, wait, time out. How long have you known this? Why haven't you reported it at the daily threat meetings? Why isn't it in the daily threat matrix? We would have begun an investigation that day into CIA malfeasance and misfeasance. That's why we're not informed. So they put their own asses above national security. If you believe all of this, well, I can't prove this. I have a set of facts. I'm trying to make sense of those facts. And I'm trying to come up with an explanation as to why those facts that we know are true occurred. In the tower above the earth There is a view that reaches far And by the way, if they had, even as late as September 4th, told me, we would have conducted a massive sweep. We would have conducted it publicly. We would have found those assholes. There's no doubt in my mind, even with only a week left. They were using credit cards in their own names. They were staying in the Charles Hotel in Harvard Square, for heaven's sake. We would have found them. If we'd taken those pictures and put them out on the AP wire, those guys would have been arrested within 24 hours. Have you asked George Tennant or Kofor Black or Richard Lee about any of this after the fact? No. It kind of, the facts tripped out to you over time, right, over these investigations, and then you started Took seeing, a while. Yeah. And so you, you've never approached them, so what's the deal? You used to be kind of buddies with Tim, right? So Look at it this way. They've been able to get through a joint House investigation committee and get through the 9-11 commission, and this has never come out. They got away with it. They're not going to tell you, even if you waterboard them. <laughs> In the tower the okay, so we've just heard Richard Clark there going through the narrative we've been talking about and suggesting a possible motive on behalf of the CIA, George Tennant and Cobra Black, in that they were looking to recruit these two Al-Qaeda figures as double agents. So I'll put that to you as a hypothesis, Adam. What do you make of that? Interestingly enough, I posed that question to former CIA analyst himself, John Kiriakou, last year. And Kiriakou says he doesn't believe that. Now, just, just to clarify, he's actually quite famous because of his whistleblowing on torture, isn't he? That's correct. And he was jailed for it. Um, and when, when he said that, I was a little bit perturbed. I said, well... Even though that makes sense what Clark suggested, because Kofor Black really was uh, just disgusted with the fact that uh, the CIA, as long as they were in the region, did not try and to have inside contacts. Now, that was why he implemented Jawbreaker 5, was in the hopes of trying to penetrate Bin Laden's circle to uh, have um, uh, contacts close contacts to the bin Laden uh, cell itself in Afghanistan and that it was shot down by Bill Clinton. Um, but I would submit to you, if they really wanted to have uh, sources close to bin Laden, I don't think they would have tried for Khalid al-Minar and Al-Hamzi because for one, um, they weren't that close to bin Laden. Uh, they spoke to, uh, basically, they spoke to people like Abu Zubaydah and 
Muhammad Atef, who are just lieutenants, and well, Atef is the commander in chief of the military of Al Qaeda, and Abu Zubaydah is in charge of the um, logistical and training nature of Al Qaeda in Afghanistan. Um, if they wanted to get that much, sure. But both of those men spoke terrible English. And in order to have them flip inside the United States, I would say, well, that's a little bit too late because, for one, only Khalid al Midar went to Yemen uh, in 2001 under the, uh, under, uh, the protestations of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who didn't want him to leave Nawab Hamzi alone. And he almost pulled Khalid al Midar from the operation. Um, I'll, I'll speak more on that later. But what I'm trying to tell you is that if the CIA actually wanted to flip these people, they could have flipped people at the Malaysia summit meeting themselves. They were right there. And they had high-value targets. Ramzi bin Shabib was there. Hambali, Ridwan Ismin from Jemaah Islamia. Uh, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, for God's sakes. They, they decide to try and flip Khalid al-Minor and Nawaf Hamzi inside the United States. Um, I think that's a stretch. Uh, I'm not saying that that didn't happen, but I, would, I think that's a stretch, uh, considering that um, they weren't even going to go back uh, to Afghanistan and contact anybody of, of any value. While they were here in the United States, they only had minimal value with Muhammad Atta and Marwan al-Shaib. And that wasn't until much later. Okay, another theory I could put on the table is that the CIA believed the Saudis were handling them and didn't want to embarrass the Saudis by exposing these radicals in the country. And I, I think I'm getting this from Kevin Fenton of Memory Serves, uh, who wrote the really definitive book on this, Disconnecting the Dots. Yes. Um, so, so we could put the, the CIA were trying to flip them um, on the table. We could put the CIA didn't want to embarrass the Saudis on the table, if you think that belongs there. And the third possibility that comes to my mind then is they were protected so the 9-11 attacks could go ahead. That, that's something I would agree with. They're, they're the three options that I think we could discuss. Now, the most right. surprising thing about this is that we don't have any... There we kind of come to an end, right? Because the 9-11 Commission... Well, I'll ask you to say a little bit about that, what the 9-11 Commission did and didn't do in terms of investigating this. But going off Richard Clark's comments there, one thing I find surprising is that the CIA did not mention this right up until before the attacks, even in briefings in early September, because doing so would have opened up an investigation into CIA, CIA malfeasance. Okay, that's directly what Richard Clark said. It would have opened up an investigation into malfeasance prior to anyone even being killed, but post 3,000 people being dead, there was no investigation into such malfeasance. Is that, is that accurate, Adam? Is it because the, the, how did the commission and other investigations go into looking at the CIA's activities here? Actually, the, the Joint House Inquiry, Porter Goss, the head chair, actually opening statement on day one was that they were not going to hold anybody responsible, but rather they wanted to talk about uh, what areas they can improve on. To the 9-11 Commission, well, Thomas Kane and Lee Hamilton, the co-chairs and head chair, um, actually suggested that they weren't there to point fingers. So right off the bat, you had the two congressional inquiries, and they're not going to hold anybody accountable. And even then, still, George Tenet, Kofi Black, um, admitted, I mean, I, I mean, they perjured themselves. 
on, on, right there then uh, regarding that the information was not shared or was not properly transcribed. I mean, I, I, I know I mentioned this previously what, what George Tennant tells Carl Levin that nobody read the cable regarding Khalid Al-Midar uh, having a multi-entry visa. Well, that's not true because 53 agents read that cable and you just heard through the clip that Richard Clark said, yeah, over 50 agents actually read that cable. Yes, he lied. Kofor Black lied, as well as Condoleezza Rice, Robert Mueller to an extent, and um, other, uh, and NORAD themselves. I mean, they gave a false timeline. These are the people that we need to concentrate if we're going to talk about malfeasance and also, if people want to take that step, complicity. Because we, we sure don't have any documentation that says we allowed them to do this. But I for sure can make a great argument that certain people within the CIA, Alex Station, wanted this to happen. Certain people. Sure. And that's not including the other agencies involved, like the Mossad or uh, the Pakistan ISI as a GID, the General Intelligence Director of Saudi Arabia, mm -hmm. which I'm, I'm sure that that's what the Saudi nationals were, that work, work in align with, too. Um, but yeah, I mean, you had numerous players involved, all acting in accordance with one another. Yeah, and this seems like we're really hitting nail on the head here with what to focus on. Because I, I appreciate that the ideas about controlled demolitions of the buildings have become really center stage. And I can see why. Okay, because there is this sense, well, if you could just prove the building, you know, if you could prove that in its physics, then that, that's it, 9-11 wrapped up, it was an inside job. Um, but issues like Alex Station, which are more subtle, not so flashy, but you clearly, whether, it, you know, it might not in and of itself prove complicity or a wanting for the attacks to happen, but it clearly crosses the line into something like criminal negligence and perjury, right? You've got all that wrapped up there, and that's an entry point to go all the way and asking the deeper questions then. So, in, I mean, I, I think we've, we've touched on a lot of crucially important issues in this series, but this issue of Alex Station might be the most important one so far. Oh, I absolutely agree, because this is, the, this is actually the centerpiece. If you want to show malfeasance or complicity, it's right here. I mean, and, the, and it, it was blatant because you had FBI agents inside the same uh, institution, which had the pertinent information that they could have easily shared and stopped these two people, arrested them right away as soon as they entered the United States. And not just that, also not putting these two people, the CIA, uh, the, I'm talking about the CIA itself now, on a watch list, knowing that these two men, Khalid Al-Minar and Wap Ramzi, were involved with the coal bombing itself. So you know that these people have nefarious attentions and that these people came from uh, bin Laden's inner cell itself, Al-Qaeda. So that you, one has to wonder, either they, they were totally inept and totally um, uh, misleading in their handling of the information, or they had a much more nefarious agenda involved, which is, of course, wanting the attacks to happen. Now, whether they knew they, they were going to use planes, I would submit to you this. I think the NSA knew more about the intricate details than the CIA did. Because remember, all the information that was related inside that Yemeni safe hub was recorded on phone, those transcripts. Yeah. The NSA knew more about the operation than the CIA did, even though the CIA knew a lot. And the FBI 
you know, you've next to nothing and the, the organizations after that. But I would submit to you, the, the NSA itself knew a lot about what was happening because they actually were listening into the phone calls uh, made from the house and called to the house itself from all these uh, uh, Al-Qaeda operatives worldwide. For, final question from me, Adam. If there was monitoring of Nawaf al-Hamzi and Khalid al in the United States throughout the months of 2001, it's hard to see how that wouldn't have led people to uncover the plot in some way. Um, well, I would agree with that. But uh, remember now, a lot of these people kept low profile. Now, with, especially with al-Hazmi and al-Midar, they barely ever went out. They didn't commiserate with a lot of people. They did it. And I'll talk more about this in our next interviews regarding 9-11, just in the months or days before, that they did have jobs. They worked at a gas, uh, gas station cleaning cars. And even the people there saw them as very seclusive. So at least those two people kept a low profile. Not so much regarding Muhammad Atta. Um, sure, sure. Well, I mean, that's a fascinating but, story. Yeah. His, you know, cocaine yeah. binge down in Florida. We'll come on to that. Right. Um, but no, it, it just, I mean, you would think if they were trying to flip them, they're aware that they have two men here who have been involved in a serious bombing against a U.S. military target in the past. What the CIA do, is doing in monitoring and not passing the information on is illegal. So, again, I come back to the same kind of questions that came up for me um, when we were talking about the blind shake and the CIA bringing him into the country. You, you would think, or allowing him to come in, you would think that, well, if it was me doing that kind of thing, I'd want these people on a fairly tight leash with regard to what they've been up to. And at some point these hijackers have to interact with other players. They have to buy plane tickets. They have to go to the airport. And if you, you have information coming in from one angle about potential hijackings and you have two Al-Qaeda members in the country and, and one day they get up and drive to the airport, you've got to wonder how, how does that play out without anyone being able to interject there and stop this. That's why they told them so late so that they wouldn't interfere because when they told the FBI finally and Richard Clark and the National Security Council, they actually gave them enough information, but very vague. Whereas the plane tickets were already bought for everybody. And that the, the only things I think they were, uh, they, they used in their real name was the credit cards at the Walmart where they bought the box covers. And that was in the night before 9-11 and whatnot. So they were still using their real information, credit cards, why that? And that's why it goes back to that point Richard Clark made in that, in that um, interview with Ray and John, and which he states that they could have stole, even with just a week away, or days away, they still could have found them because they were still using credit cards in their own names in their hotels. They were purchasing things, even went to the gym. <laughs> Some of those people went to the gym using their own. But the information was so vague from the CIA they couldn't really act on it. So like you had the FBI just going all over the place, looking, frantically looking, and not knowing where to look specifically, even though they were even in the same uh, cities and states where like the FBI had, I mean, in the field offices in Washington, New York, that's where they were at. But much like a fox in the hen house, where are you going to look for the fox outside the hen house? Meanwhile, he's right there. Hmm. So it's actually, you know, as a final, final point, I will just say 
Uh, I think it's worth mentioning, I don't think we have, that the, these two were two of the hijackers on Flight 77, right, that went into the Pentagon. That's correct. And it is interesting then that there's this big movement, and we encounter it quite a bit in the 9-11 Truth Movement, around saying no plane hit the Pentagon, right? And I, I'm not saying that if you think that, I don't like to tell people what to think, so if you think that, then, then fine, right? I mean, I've it's not something I've, I'll just be honest, it's not something I've, I've you know, gone into the argument and counter-arguments about. I know you have, Adam, and, and you're, you're convinced that a plane hit the Pentagon. But it is interesting to observe that what we're talking about here would be, you know, to me, like the real smoking gun. Like, this is one of the absolute central questions you would put on the table about 9-11. And if you say, well, actually, no plane hit the Pentagon, it kind of removes the reality of this whole situation. I think it makes it considerably less likely you will then investigate, well, who were the, the hijackers on the plane that you don't think actually hit the Pentagon? And you won't investigate that then back to Alex Station and what the CIA weren't, weren't doing in informing the FBI. You know what I mean? It does seem to, uh, again, it, I don't think it's impossible that you could hold those two views, that you could think no plane hit the Pentagon, but still think Alex Station was important. But it doesn't seem as likely to me. And that's, you know, I'm just want to throw that out there as to where do these ideas of no planes come from and so on, and how could they potentially be used to protect the whole, the the 9/11 official story or to to damage an investigation into it in some way. Let me let me answer it like this: for those who don't believe planes were used or crashed anywhere on 9/11, that means you don't believe in hijack. You don't believe in hijackers, you don't believe in hijacked planes. You don't believe in hijacked planes, you don't believe in passengers who make calls. If you don't believe any of that, that means you cannot hold, com complicit, cannot hold the NSA, the CIA, Israeli Mossad complicit in the attacks itself. Why? For one, the CIA allowed two hijackers to enter the United States. They knew about them for two or three years, didn't tell the FBI allow them to enter the United States, even though that they knew that these people were involved in other terrorist operations. Then when they get to the United States, they're then monitored by the Israeli Mossad because the Israeli Mossad has numerous moving front companies, which, are, which is a great idea because they can move from state to state. And it wasn't just urban moving systems. You have white glove movers, classic international movers. And these were all, and I'll talk about these on the later. Yeah, sure, interview. sure. Um, these are all people aligned with uh, the Israeli Mossad because they were all connected with one another so that they and they actually moved one hijacker from Florida to New York um, Omar Abdullah, Abdullah Aziz Alamari but without any hijackers you don't have CIA malfeasance you don't have NSA malfeasance knowing what's being called at the MBSA hub because there's no high and, and, and of course the Israeli Mossad following the hijackers knowing they're inside the United States and not telling the State Department or the FBI about it either so without hijackers, you have none of these organizations monitoring them, following them, and if you want, having some type of foreknowledge or complicity. Why? Because no hijackers, no attacks. Who's following them? Who cares? They don't exist. Alex Station doesn't exist. Um, I-49 team in New York doesn't exist. Yeah, sure. So sure. then you just – and the irony is that a lot of these people also blame – just the Israeli state, or they just blame uh, the State Department, or they just blame CIA.
but you can't blame them now because you just eliminated the strongest link to the attacks themselves, which is the hijackers. You need the hijackers. If the operation was to have hijacked planes crashing into their targets, you better have the hijackers in the planes crashing into their targets or else you don't have these uh, intelligence apparatuses uh, involved because they're not following them. The strongest yeah. link. That's what I'm saying. About sure. Right. So, yeah, I, I'd just like to, you know, hold out an olive branch there because I don't like to tell people what to think with regard right. to anything. Right. And also, it's completely fruitless. And I, I can have a lot of sympathy of that, right? Because in stepping into something like 9-11 Truth, you're confronted with a thousand different people holding a million different theories. And you've, you've already, you know, taken the red pill and gone down the rabbit hole just by questioning this stuff at all. And now you're in a strange, we don't know what world you're in and what makes sense. And, you know, up is down and right is left in some senses. It's very, very difficult. Um, so I have, a lot of, I have a lot of sympathy. You know, I, I don't know why, you know, one idea will be sensible and another one would be uh, crazy. Where, where the kind of crazy line is, it, it, it's very difficult. So all I would say, uh, which I think is hopefully a helpful and reconciliatory statement, is that even if you don't think a plane hit the Pentagon, right? If, if whatever evidence is, is, has convinced you of that, um, perhaps don't let that be a reason to not investigate things like Alexation, even if, you know, um, you, you think the plane took off and went to a hangar somewhere um, and whatever happened to the people happened to them and the missile hit the Pentagon. Um, the, the, don't allow that to diminish the evidence that's being put forward about things like Alexation because it, it's really, really strong. It's one of the strongest links in the whole chain of, you know, what really happened, understanding what really happened on 9-11. Right. And, well, I, I mean, I sound like a broken record at this point, but I don't want you to just believe what I have to say here in these interviews. I want you to take what I have to say and you research it yourself. And that's what um, me and Richard have been implying for all this time. And, you know, it doesn't just end. You know, I know certain people just want to concentrate on the Pentagon or Shankville. And that's why we're doing this series. It, we're showing you a much more broader picture where the conspiracies are much bigger. I mean, there's plenty of conspiracy with 9-11, it's right there in front of you. But with certain people in the truth movement, and I'm not talking about the followers, talk about the leaders, the so-called leaders, uh, they want you to look in a direction where there's a dead end and that they don't give you alternate values. They just say the planes don't exist and that's it. They say it's a drone or they say it's a missile, it's a hologram, but they don't tell you anything after that because it's based on one's imagination and that's it. And if they ever tried to own up on their information, they would have to uh, reiterate or reevaluate their whole position. And that's not what a lot of these people do. And because that would have to admit that they're wrong and that they, you know, will lose a lot of people because of it, unfortunately. Okay. Well, we'll yeah, sure. I mean, we'll, I'm sure we'll talk about Flight 77 and the Pentagon sure. probably in the not too distant future. Uh, so we'll touch on these issues or then it just, it seemed like a, a good point to, to mention that given the importance of the Alex Station narrative. Um, anything more from yourself, Adam, or are we ready to, to wrap this up for? for to well, I'm ready to wrap it up, but I, you know, just, just to add too, um, when, uh, after the, the, the Khalid Al-Midar and Wapa Hamdi at the United States, uh, what, I, what I want to mention is it's a big uh, report, which is called the, a presidential daily brief, everybody knows it's the August 6th, 2001 brief, wasn't presented by Tenet. 
was presented by his briefer to, to George Bush at his ranch in Texas. And why I'm bringing this is up, because the report warns of a large-scale attack inside the United States based upon the information of who? Ali Muhammad and Jamal Al-Fadl, people we already talked about. What I'm saying is now with the, the, the hijackers in the country, Khalid al Al-Fahamzi, the reports are now slowly trying to trickle in. The reports by the FBI, by information collected by the CIA and the NSA, right? But even though the CIA is very vague in information, they're warning the United States now about a possible big attack, a possible attack maybe involving planes, but we don't know where they're going. And in the interviews, the future interviews we're giving, I'll show you that the information that they're giving is very minimal for a reason. And it's because that uh, the State Department already knew that planes would be used as weapons long before the August 6th PDB. And it goes back into the Bajinka plot. Okay, thank you very much, Adam. Looking forward to getting onto those subjects. Not entirely sure exactly where we're going next, but um, thanks everyone for joining us. Any questions? criticisms comments anything like that please do let us know and um thanks again adam we'll see you next time thank you very much richard for having me